0: Well, good afternoon to you. Uh, This is Alan Seymour, your host here on The Future of Sport, all in sports talk. Very pleased, actually, that this will be my 20th episode since the launch of the show. I think it was last September. Delighted today to introduce onto my show Richard Gillis. People might know Richard uh, from his social media presence, particularly on Twitter, the unofficial partner. I'd like to begin, if I can, Richard. Just tell us a little bit about why you use social media in such a way, and what presence do you think you have on social media, uh, using it in the context of your interest in sport. Sure.
1: Um, and thanks for having me on your twentieth show. The unofficial uh, partner came about. So I'm a journalist, um, and I used to.
0: Edit Sport Business magazine, and so we're going back now along quite a long time. Um, I noticed in the, in the uh, yesterday that the Sport Business has just been bought for sixteen million. Correct, quid, so, just Correct. Um, so
1: I was an edit, I, I edited the magazine in the early two thousands, and I was from there. I was sort of I went freelance in about two thousand and four, I think, and I went to Ireland, worked for I, the Irish Times. All of which is is uh, is context, but actually, what happened is that the four years I spent at at sport business were very good in terms of one, getting to understand this peculiar industry, um, and it's not sometimes not straightforward, and people it can be confusing, and getting more so. Um, And the other bit is that see, you know, it's a very it was a very good place to build a you know a very decent contact base. So, um, from there, I essentially was freelancing and I worked for people like the FT and the Observer and the the Financial Times. Always in that sort of shtick of hinting at behind the scenes knowledge of sport with, uh, you know, only sometimes delivering on that promise. But it was, that was the the line. And then, about 2010, um, myself and Kat Hawkins, who runs Think Sponsorship, um, Kat bought. Uh, sponsorship news and I then ran that for a while and it was good fun we sort of took a made a a point that actually there was a load of stuff in the market in terms of lots of people delivering content and you know lots of magazines and people online saying okay you know giving fairly straight uh, explanations of things and lots of comment about you know deals and what's happening and I just sort of, I got a bit bored, to be honest, and said, right, well, let's do it in a different way. Let's just uh, you know, use a more human tone of voice. And that really kicked off Unofficial Partner, because when we, when we um, stopped doing p- uh, Platform Magazine, um, it, I started Unofficial Partner as a blog, and just as a, as a sort of place to, to, to go, really. Um, and this was in the sort of, I suppose t- it was 2010, um, and then that then went into, I do much less blogging now and I spend more time on Twitter because Twitter is just so much more media and you can do a lot, you can tell the same sorts of stories on Twitter but, but you know, the, the obvious uh, 140 character limit is actually a good discipline and blogging is sort of, I quite miss it actually occasionally, just having somewhere to go but I do write columns and stuff so I've got plenty of places to, if I've got a, a view Um, to get them out there, but Twitter has always been, for me, quite a useful device, I quite enjoy doing it, I like the, you know, just the dipping in and dipping out, Um, and it's somewhere where you can just sort of, journalism is, is, you have a certain uh, discipline, and you need to sort of and particularly if you're freelance, you need to fall in line with the with the tone of voice of whatever publication you're writing for, whereas Twitter and, and social media are completely different, and you can be more yourself, and I've enjoyed that freedom, um, and, and actually that has, makes you a, a sort of a better writer and a better sort of um, commentator, I think
0: I mean, Richard, I, I mean, I just dwelt and so many of the, uh, the points that you raise their fascinations, interests and everything else so I'm just if I may going to pick up on a couple of the, uh, the the highlights of some of those words that you said you're a journalist journalism now has become I'm, I'm not going to say this in the sense that there is a blur between what journalists do and how they relate using their presence and profiles on social media particularly and in my sphere in sport you know sports journalists themselves per se of almost, well probably they are celebrities in their own right in the way that they use social media. But Is there a way in which journalism can relate a lot better, do you think, in the way it uses some of the tools on social media? Or are they there for some just as, they must be followed? Or can we believe them? Or do they instigate things on behalf of their their editors, their readership, etc.? I know there's a lot of questions in there, but I'm just interested, fascinated in your perspectives on the relationship between journalists and journalism and particularly new communications Yeah, it's a it's
1: a it's a good question because I think what's happened is that uh, people have confused content with journalism.
0: Correct. And there's a there's a lot of content out there, and there ain't much journalism out there. So (laughs) that's and and I've got a feeling that journalism will come back into fashion
1: because we've got a president, and we've got various you know who are who are quite happy to to make stuff up and you know. Put stuff out there, and there's, a, there's so much flying around in terms of just information and misinformation. But journalism, at its core, is and should—or should, should be—about fact checking and making sure that things are correct and getting the you know getting the truth out there and speaking truth to power. Those are all the sort of reasons that journalism exists. Now, sometimes when you look at on, online, but also if you look at you know you've only got again W H Smith. It's full of magazines, most of which look like a bit like journalism. And you look at, at articles on Medium, and you, you look at articles um, on uh, lots of different sites, and it can look like journalism, but it isn't, and it's not its content. And that's a very important distinction. And when you then move into the sort of corporate realm, you've also got you know corporations who see content as the growth area. Content marketing is obviously a, yeah. a big buzzword. Um, everyone's talking about storytelling, but it's not journalism. And sometimes, uh, you know, I, I quite often I've done a, a few things on that brands can, there's lots of, re, lots of places that brands can play, and you see this around sport, but they want to be providers of information. Yeah. Um, all of which, you know, some of it is okay, is when they call themselves brand journalism, brand journalists, <laughs> That's when my hack start to rise, because actually we've got, journalism has sort of lost its meaning. And actually what's happened is that you get um, people saying, oh, well, that's a piece of investigative journalism. And that word is, is a sort of, is a an attempt to defend or to, to sort of say, look, okay, no, some journalism has taken place here. An act of journalism has taken place. Um, and actually... I am a big believer in it that the J word is important and we should keep it and protect it. That's, you know, it's come under enormous fire. I've got a feeling that what I'm seeing at the moment is that when you look at the big news organisations, the point of difference that they have, and, you know, I'm talking here about The Guardian and The Times and The New York Times and Washington Post, traditional print media products and the BBC and, um, you know, the broadcast equivalents, but news is, um, that is becoming the premium on trust in this environment is going up. And so if I, if you're running newspapers or if you are a news editor, actually being certain of facts and making sure that you can market yourself around being, you know, checking facts, then that is commercially a good thing. You can sort of see potentially a move. It's going to be slow. It's going to be, um, It's not going to happen overnight, and there's always going to be a blurring of that line. And some of the newspapers, you know, that portray themselves as newspapers are are nothing of the sort. And you know, so it's it's a it's it's a very variable world. And um, one of the you know, but I do think, as I said before, I think that, that journalism it's going to come
0: back into I mean, Richard, if I I can... I couldn't agree with you more. That's not patronising. It's a statement. You've justified it. I want to develop that a little bit more because you've put in there this word that I believe journalism is still alive. It needs to reinvent itself or reposition itself or do something to justify maybe some of these blurs that are existing. But the words that you've used, like trust, a human touch... I mean, we're surrounded by fake news and all of the the, the the negative buzz, if you like, around that. So where it can be seen, you know, to do the job and to be truthful and, 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 and to really, you know, check its facts and all the relevant points that you've made, I couldn't agree with you more. If we develop this further and commercially because obviously of the context of my future of sports show and relevance to sport I think here this human touch, this importance of relevancy and this, you know, you've used the phrase point of difference, where do you think, you know, because content is out there and we'll have content creators from you and I, you know the the, the, the general public in many ways, you've taken an interest in all things to do with the internet but how can they stand out a lot more, what will be, if you like the social media journalist of the future, if I can put it in that context.
1: Well, I mean, the, the, the sort of... There are two things running in parallel. One is is uh, journalism is, is, you know, is dying.
0: Right. The parallel story is that it's never been better, and never been a better time to be a journalist. OK. So you've got these two sort of stories that are running uh, uh, next to each other, which... Um, the, the, the positive story is
1: that the tools of social media are extraordinarily powerful if you want to do journalism. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to, uh, if, you're, if, if people are, you know, uh, self-publishing on all the platforms that you know, we know about, one area that you can stand out is actually to do some journalism rather than just be a gobshite who's got an opinion so on right. something. So there is a, you know, there is a, a real opportunity for people yeah. and to say, look, okay, okay, I'm going to spend a bit of time actually doing some research. I'm going to do, a, you know, whether that could be book research or it can be going and actually asking people questions. You know, things that journalists do, those are things that are completely open. It's not just the tools of distribution that are open. It's also, you know, Doing the work, yeah. And I think that quite often, again, we're, we're, it's complex. Complex, but if you look at a newspaper, and the, the problem is that market the marketing research that comes back from the marketing department of, of newspapers is that the differentiators are the opinion formers. You know, everyone wants to be an influencer because you know no one wants to be a reporter. Yeah. And because reporting is an entry level job and. You know, the, the money and fame and kudos goes to the columnists and the opinion writers. Now, that's a problem. because and, and what needs to happen is that, you know, if you look at some of the great exposés of the last five years in the social media uh, era, they are written by reporters. Diligent journal- journalism is bloody hard work, I can right. tell you that. Yeah. It's much, much harder than just saying, oh, I've got an opinion, I'm going to write this down and be funny or be, yeah. you know, have a hot take. So there is a sort of... But that the tools that are available on social media are fantastic, you know, and, and just for reaching people, for talking people, to having proper dialogue. So seriousness, doesn't mean boring, but seriousness in journalism um, is, is open to everyone. You don't have to be a complete idiot, you know, and, and it's just we're a bit misled because when you open the paper, it's, you know... The, the headlines and the the big byline pictures go to Richard Littlejohn or yeah. you know whoever it is who are making a, a you know Kelvin McKenzie and people think oh well that's journalism and actually it's not really it's a form of journalism it always was opinion journalism there's a space for it but it's it's, it's not the, the 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 sort of bread and butter so that's uh, my take on it would be that actually it's a good time so if you've got students who are looking to get into journalism it's quite difficult to get paid in some cases you know but you have to you have to say that it's a better time now it's much better than you would you know if you were trying to get published into a, in, in a you know in even 10 years ago or 15 years ago you had to go to a newspaper to get your name out there and you had to be a, be a journalist
0: I mean I had... I, th- I think Richard that that point sorry to come across you there that, I mean at that point and, and for students aspiring career people using social media the tools are fantastic I mean, you know, I'm late into my career, you know, I've notionally retired from my university lecturing position, but I've never been busier because there's still jobs to be done, there's still research to be done, there's lots of opportunities to create the necessary debate against some of the falsities that are out there, the fake news that I referred to, and people using their position, so to speak, as influencers when in fact they're not really influencers at all because they're just using the celebrity or the clickbait phenomena, you know, whereas they haven't done the research so refreshingly i think the first part of our interview today has really hit some really good notes i think not only for my sports students per se but maybe uh, you know the youth of tomorrow the career aspirants in lots of other areas can i just segue nicely then maybe because you've, you've used this word tools and research Tell us a little bit about your published works and how you've used social media and some of those research, you know, particularly maybe on the, the publication of the, the, the Captain Myth and maybe some of the connections with sport. I, I know you're obviously looking at your dialogue as much as anything in social media, cricket and, uh, and golf and various other sports come to mind. And obviously, the Captain Myth, I believe, is built around the Ryder Cup. So tell us and tell my audience a little bit about that, if you could, Richard.
1: Sure, I mean, just very quickly The, the Captain Myth came about because um, I was interviewing and had interviewed over the years a
0: lot of Ryder Cup captains Okay. Um, and that was...
1: Uh, but what struck me is and what the book is about is it's really a sort of we're quest- uh, questioning the cult of leadership that has grown up around sport so it's a counterpoint to the sort of Leadership industry that's grown, um, uh, particularly in sport, but we see it in business and politics yeah. as well. So it's an attempt to say, "Look, okay, are we are we right in doing this?" You know, what, what's what's happening? Because if you if you look at football is the classic example, but the Ryder Cup is a is a, it was a nice, neat sort of uh, place to, to to have the debate. Is that? It's that you know, leadership has become the lens through which we watch sport. And, and we were, again, looking at journalism, movement, that's how we report sport is that, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you, if you read the papers, you'd struggle, you know, sometimes you struggle to, you see a player's name, you know, it's yeah. about Mourinho, it's about <laughs> Wenger and Ferguson and yeah. Klopp. So, um, and the problem with all this is that sport is fantastically good at amplifying messages
0: yeah.
1: it's you know and that's what sports marketing is and that's why it's successful and has outgrown lots of other marketing disciplines is that actually it takes sometimes quite dry subject and puts them in front of the mainstream audience you know and normalizes them in a way that that you would struggle to do otherwise things like leadership strategy management style these were sort of dusty back ends of business books and actually football and sport in general has has put them on, you know, uh, given them a much higher profile. And so, we, you know, that was interesting to me. And I just think that the nature of my book is to actually say, well, yeah, but I'm not sure we're getting this right. And the, the, so the, the book starts with, we look at the Ryder Cup and the Ryder Cup, you have two types of captain. So the Ryder Cup captain is in charge of the two teams, you know, one of the teams, America versus Europe, obviously. And if you win, you're a good captain. If you lose, you're a bad captain. Yeah. And that dichotomy runs through the way in which we talk about leadership. And actually what we're doing is we're we're post rationalizing and we're, we're making um, all sorts of statements about... So if you win a football match or if you win, win the Ryder Cup or if you are in charge when success happens in a business, we will make stories up that support that evidence. The only evidence we've got is that you won. Correct. So, when you win, you are your your methods and your strategy are explored and publicised and taken to be the good strategy. Or this is this is how you should run teams. And if, likewise, if you lose, then you're an idiot, you know, and everything you've done is tarred with your idiot brush. So there's a there's a sort of you know an obvious flaw in the way in which we talk about leadership, and there's a halo effect around. Uh, good
0: leaders that is 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 just wrong frankly most of the time but we see it around you know we do it in
1: politicians we see it in we we do it with business leaders Uh, if you're if you're you know if, if success happens on your watch then happy days
0: I mean, it's an interesting, if I can just, cut I would like to develop this because obviously, again, referring back, positioning almost, you know, future of sport and, and, and my reference to sport business and sport marketing. And I'll come back to that as we close our interview today. But I'm fascinated by this success, failure, you know, winning and losing. You know, and I'm going to take, I'm, I mean, I'm a golfer, I'm sure you are, Richard, or at least, you know, your context there and content, content contact, sorry, with it Okay, (laughs) well well, that's actually interesting, that's going to be my point here because let's take two Ryder Cup captains, Paul McGinley and Nick Faldo McGinley maybe some might say, you know, over egg the strategy, all the research and everything else, but one, Nick Faldo, lost who's the better golfer, clearly there's no argument on that. So there's that whole perspective here, and everything is done almost post, as you say, or retrospectively. Have you probed deeper and deeper into the mechanisms that maybe not always win or maybe not always lose? Or what's the importance of that? Obviously, we use a benchmark of late leadership equals success, and perhaps, you know, using a political metaphor almost, we can... Wobbly at the moment, maybe doesn't uh, equate to success. So, what do your take? What's your take on that, Richard? Well, if you compare the two, you know,
1: essentially, uh, I mean, I call it the captain myth. It's to do with the stories that, that surround uh, leadership. So, if you take Faldo and McGinley
0: as the two sort of polar yeah. opposites, and, and you know, in the history of the Ryder
1: Cup, those two will be one is an obvious good captain, one's the obvious bad captain. Correct. Now. If a thought experiment would be if they if, if the results had gone the other way, yeah. So if McKinley had lost, he would have been seen not as a a sort of brilliant strategist and a details man and the guy that you know made the fish blue and yellow in the in the team room <laughs> and you know put, put posters on the wall uh, saying you know, of, of rocks in rough seas and yeah. you know we are the rock and. Uh, Etc., all of which, when you win, feeds into a story of of the great, uh, I say it's like almost like a Dave Brailsford attention (laughs) to detail, marginal gains type story that was very prevalent. Now, McGinley had a problem if you you go back before the Ryder Cup, he was, I remember going to an event in Scotland and and where McGinley and Tom Watson, who was his opposite number, um, Sort of were, were appearing in front of a, a, a Scottish audience. Now Tom Watson is there's not a more popular man in Scotland. Correct, than Watson. correct. And they introduced the two captains, and and Tom Watson was introduced first, and the applause went for about five minutes. It was like uh, you know you'd nothing's ever heard. He, and they wrote they sort of read his his uh, list of major victories and his, his career success, and then as the applause died down, the bloke turned around and said. And here we have Paul McGinley, you know, and it was winner of the Benson and Hedges
0: event in, you know, and, and it was like a, Aye. it was a really
1: interesting problem that, that he had because he was up against the legend. And yeah. Paul McGinley is a very nice chap and I really like him a lot. Um, very sensible, and very bright, but he's not a legend of the game in the way that Watson is. And he mm. knew that and played, the, played it very cleverly and knew it, always at every point. Play down his role as a very much a supporting act, and that was jumped on when he won. now, if you then look at um, had he lost he would have, it would have been you know he lost in the, in the against the, the, the legend of Watson, and Watson was the, was the great sort of hero figure yeah. now if you then go back to Faldo, if Faldo had won, Faldo was like one I seen as a very detailed man, very you know he 's a difficult bloke, Faldo we all know yeah. he's someone who is in person actually good company and and witty and you know it's just that through the lens of television it it, it sometimes goes astray but he's also quite a tricky customer Um, and lots of people don't like him in the game so he was but we know he's stubborn he's a brilliant golfer and we know that he's obsessed with detail so if he'd have won he would have been the plotter he would have been the guy that you know masterminded and had thought at every level he lost and he got slated Know, and, and what we forget about the Ryder Cup is that Europe has won a lot. You know, and so we've got this, again, this story of European superiority in the Ryder Cup. And what we forget is that quite often we're, we're winning by a point or you know, sometimes less. So you've got um, a very misleading evidence base. And Fado was always going to cop it if he
0: lost. But that had nothing much to do with how he okay. went about the job people were very critical of him and the players came out and were very critical of
1: him. But if they'd have won, you know, they'd have found stories that supported the success. And, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's, and that's, I think, a universal trait that we have.
0: Yeah, I mean, Richard, if again, sorry to come across, I, I'm, I'm just fascinated because obviously we, we could talk for a long, long time here and suddenly we're going to run out of time in the next five minutes or so. But the importance of detail because interestingly, in both these, whether they're polar apart, as you suggest, or, you know, one's right, one's wrong, whatever measurement we use, attention to detail was part, you know, it permeated through both of these guys. So maybe in social media perspectives, maybe going back to what journalists need to do and, and all the things that we've probably touched upon today. we talk a lot, in particular sport at the moment, about the importance of analytics, and I'm, I'm writing a textbook at the moment, and, and I'm, I'm concentrating on that area in some contexts And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Wimbledon at the moment, and Wimbledon have been fascinating. in tennis as the sport in using social media, fan engagement, apps, and so on. But their attention to detail and the importance of analytics has come about as well, not only by that recognition of the audiences that they need to reach, but because of the connections that IBM have put in there and the development of technology. How do you see this? Uh, or how is it an effect, has it as affected some of the work that you've done, uh, Richard? If you can say a few words on that.
1: Yeah. So the the trend towards things like data storytelling is interesting, and so um, it's an easy term to use. It's very hard to to do. So you've got you've got two, you, as you say, you've got this group of of sports science and data and analytics. Again, enormously powerful, and in the right hands. Illuminating,
0: Correct.
1: you know, and can genuinely illuminate. Yeah. You know, it can really just put shine a shine a light on something that you hadn't thought about before, or it just offers a counter-intuitive view when done well. The problem with data is that is doing it well because there's so much of it, and it's so it's, it's the ability to create information um, has created its own communications problem. And so one of the issues is is misreading the information that you've got. So, um, in the rush to present data in a, in a way that is, uh, you know, at the front end when you're looking at it from a media perspective, and I agree, Wimbledon have done some really lovely stuff, yeah. and IBM have done done some really nice things. Um, I've no idea whether, you know, whether to believe it or not, okay. for the time. Um, but it looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, I've got, you know, I look at player data on in football and in, in every sport, and I think Right, but that's an That's great. That's a, that's a, that's fantastic. And I, I, but again, I'm not sure whether it's okay. true or not. It's just an interpretation of the information.
0: But, I mean, what it also suggests as well, Richard, is that the importance of presentation and, and the, you know, the, the, this word that we often talk about, having a presence and, you know, the perceptions that people out there, because I'm not a data man per se, but I know what a great PR or sport marketing or fan engagement job Wimbledon are doing with these connections, so... Maybe the the relevance and maybe the importance of attachments to that and the way you present this outside, internally, externally, if you like, is very important, yes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, marketing and journalism are different. Marketing and facts are different. Marketing is about selecting the data that is favourable to you and presenting presenting that. And the danger is that, you know, you do just that, that you select information that is favorable and mm. you're not presenting a balanced view we can all go through a mass of data and pick out the bits that we like or the bits that show um, a, a bad light um, and that is really hard for the, you know the better the front end becomes yeah. more you know easy and elegant we are in terms of getting
0: information presented to us then the harder it is actually to get to the real story. I mean, Richard, that, you know, we couldn't have timed this better, as I said earlier a few moments ago. We're sadly running out of time. But I'm going to go right back to the beginning, because almost that comment you've just made you know, marketing and journalism and maybe where does business sit in the relationship between both of these uh, considerations. You talked about your early days, your start days in many ways for the, for, for the subject or content of this interview with Sport Business uh, and as one of the best publishing houses. I mean, I, I, I know Phil Savage very well. I've been to a couple of the conferences that Kevin Roberts hosted a few years back now. What do you think that you learned most from your time at Sport Business and what you're doing now? And maybe what advice from that would you give to um, people starting off in a career of all the touch points that we've, con- you know, we've commented on today? And maybe just as a final comment, you know, where next for Richard Gillis, the unofficial partner? Maybe just a couple of summary commentaries on that if you could, Richard. Sure. Um, so things I learned from Sport Business. One, uh, Kevin Roberts.
1: He was a very dear friend of mine. He taught me okay. that uh, lunch doesn't necessarily have to involve food. <laughs>
0: that
1: was a big, big lesson for me. Um, and secondly, it was... I learnt... I was a teacher when I left university.
0: Me but too, Richard. Me too. How coincidental is that may be relevant. Yeah, go yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. well,
1: I, was, I, was, and yeah. I, I got a job... Working for Channel Four Cricket before sport business, and I—I okay. I, I was very naive in terms of what journalism was. And sport with the four years of sport business, I was a product. You know, I, I sort of produced the magazine, I sub-edited it, I wrote features, I did lots of things. It was like almost like going back to university. Yeah. Um, and we had—it was a period of time where money was wasn't an issue. They just got a lot of VC money in. Yeah. Um, and it was—it was a fantastic time. I got enormous amounts of affection. My time there and made lots of friends. But I also made lots of contacts, and I sort of got an understanding of the industry from a perspective, you know, and talked to lots and lots and lots of people um, over a very intense period of time. So it was great from that perspective, and it set me up. I mean, basically, the career that I've had since then um, I owe to to Kevin and the guys at Sport Business because they were they were great. Um, In terms of going forward, I find myself a lot I'm not doing much journalism anymore I'm writing books but I'm also um, I do a lot of consulting for um, uh, brands and rights holders yeah. and agencies so that's that sort of feels like a balance between that sort of more commercial minded work but keeping my hand into you know in the writing and I think unofficial partner and the twitter thing is, is actually quite a nice bridge between the two
0: yeah making those connections the development and, you know, storytelling and all the other things that you've brought into the equation today. We have lots of synergies. Couldn't agree with more of the comments that you've made. Thanks very much for the interview today, Richard. It's been a real pleasure, and I'm sure my audience will will equally endorse that comment. You take care, and we'll speak again, no doubt, very soon, Richard.
1: Thanks very much, Alan. I really enjoyed it.
0: Cheers. Bye-bye.